this this um, video crash takeoff thing, that's like gone viral. It's oh, it's totally viral. The, yeah, the, the, one of the local stations in D.C. apparently ran the video this evening. Oh yeah, early, earlier in the day. I mean, it, it's 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 national news locally, right? And, and it's broken out of the aviation community. Oh uh, yeah, big time. Um, and uh, so this is the video of the. Uh, what kind of airplane was it? I never even really established that. Um, it make... was a Stinson. I think it was a Voyager or 108. I don't know if yeah. there was yeah, it was. Yeah, you're right. On Stinson. a uh, sort of backwoods uh, flight, uh, apparently they were out, out hiking um, at, off of some backwoods airport, and then they went to uh, continue their travels, and uh, there were actually two, at least two cameras operating in the aircraft, yeah. um, and they took off, and I almost started to say tried to take off, and they did succeed eventually, uh, and uh, and skimmed along the the surface of the runway and never got really high, and then eventually settled into a bunch of trees and and crashed with, uh, you know, some. Well, nobody was nobody was killed. Um, people were pretty banged up. Apparently, the pilot was banged up pretty good. Uh, yeah. We we saw that on the video. That was the most disturbing part of the video. Um, but the footnote. Oh yeah, he got the he got the whack beat out of him. Yeah. Uh-huh. Now, according to the notes on the video, um, he did uh, re- re- "quote unquote" recover. Um, he's okay, but he got beat up pretty good. Anyways, no, he's, he's he, he, yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, I, I I wonder I wonder why he was the only one seriously injured. Yeah, it's an interesting question, isn't it? I, I wonder if he was wearing a shoulder belt and everybody else was. Oh, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. Let's see here. I was just kind of curious to see how many. I- I kind of wondered if it might not have been proximity to a door. That you know, it, it, belt or not, uh, yeah, it's yeah. known that people get thrown out doors and through windows when these things crash because the anchor points aren't exactly automotive level strength. No, well, but they, they can be strong enough to um, prevent ejecting a passenger. Though whether they are on that or on that airplane. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. You went through it. Went through a, a lot of distortions before it stopped. Yeah. 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 I yeah. wonder if so. The others in the aircraft, of course, were just free to be thrown around. All right. Whereas the pilot was, I speculate here. You know, attempting to keep flying the airplane. And because he was, you know, kind of probably grasping the yoke or the controls of some sort, I wonder if that contributed to the severity of his injuries. It could typically, typically, let me rephrase this. I have read where in accident investigations, they can tell who was flying the aircraft, who had their hands on the controls, let's put it that way. Um, by the nature of fractures. Interesting. Okay. Uh, of the wrists, of the hands, of the fingers, something like that. Um, just, uh, I, I'm sure they can tell other things from other evidence. Yeah. Well, there's an old saying, I don't know if it's true or if it's some sort of urban legend, but they say that if you're in a car act, if you're in a car that's in an accident, and if there's two people in the car, one is awake and the other is asleep, they they say that the person asleep will oftentimes have much less serious injuries because they kind of weren't aware and didn't tense up and kind of 
uh-huh. you know, yeah, allowed. They, yeah, they did brace themselves. Yeah, you know, and uh, and and that's sort of related to my thinking about this pilot who uh, who was probably trying real hard to to you know do whatever he was doing, and uh, and as a result um, got pure yeah. speculation as we always yeah, you know absolutely. warn people would, in these things, of which but, we're very fond. Yes, I know. Yeah, yeah. So. Uh, so, but now, what do we have to say? Given that we know no, no, no almost nothing here, um, let's do the Holiday Inn Express thing. And uh, um, you know, there's there's an NTSB preliminary report that I haven't looked at. What does it say? Uh, not a whole lot. Uh, yeah, not, it's the not a whole lot. Not a whole lot. Somebody somewhere noted that the um, they'd pulled up. Well, I think it was actually in a, it was in a different NTSB report. But someone had pulled it up. The field elevation there is like 6,300 feet, and it was on uh, the nearest station was reporting like, I don't know, 83 degrees. Uh, looked to me like they were flying yeah. towards rising terrain. I don't know what motor that, uh, that Stinson had in it, um, but my Bonanza would have a tough time mm-hmm. under those conditions. Yeah. Uh, loaded to the gills. Um and uh, you know, trying to outclimb that terrain. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, it ne- seemed never to me really getting enough, never really being able to get enough speed to accelerate and, and, and get a good climb rate. Yeah. It seemed uh, to me watching the video that he simply had a hard time. He had a hard time simply getting off the runway. Yeah. He used way more runway than he should have. Yeah. I mean, I was uh, watching the video and and I'm watching this yeah. this 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 takeoff roll. And at one point, I start almost saying out loud, "Okay, fly now, fly now." You know, <laughs> yeah. anytime uh, now. The airplane and would not accelerate. I don't know. Obviously, you know, one conclusion is the airplane was just too underpowered for this operation. I don't know if um, he got it in the – I couldn't really tell if he got it in the ground effect uh, and, and tried to accelerate there or if he was just having trouble just getting off the ground and everything else after that was kind of preordained. Yeah. I, I the, couldn't tell. Some of the viral speculations um, revolved around the airplane possibly being overloaded. Uh, did you see anything in the video that hinted at that? I, we don't know how much fuel he had on board. Mm-hmm. Yep. It did look like he had full seats from the two camera yeah. shots. He had four people. It looked like there were four people aboard, and you know these were not huge people. Um, no, we don't know that. Yeah. Again, it comes to how much fuel did he have on board. We don't know. Yeah. We don't did, know what mo- the- we don't know what motor he had in that thing either. There is one thing that I did notice. Did you, by any chance, calculate a density altitude off the information that you had? I didn't run a den out. No, no. But and, and that's, I, I, I that, that information's from memory. So let's. I mean, let's. It's a shame we don't have some tool we can use. <laughs> in this well, I was just thinking. Yeah, that that would be such a wonderful idea. Uh, but the other thing is, at the very beginning of the tape, there's just enough shot of the panel to show the red knob all the way forward. Yeah, now, whether it remained that. all the way forward is an open question. And the red knob being? The mixture knob. Thank you. The mixture knob, the knob that you would under normal circumstances, at least the way my, my primary CFI taught me, when you would lean the airplane on the ground right. during run-up. This has been a thing for you all along, J- David. You think this is that people maybe aren't trained properly in this regard. Am I right? I think that they, for a long time they were told don't lean on the ground with no regard to what density altitude was when you were on the ground. 
So, like the uh, engine uh, manuals for the two Lycoming-powered airplanes that we've owned, both have a statement in there about do not lean on the ground. And then elsewhere, one of them says don't lean below 3,000 feet. Now, those are different things. If you count density altitude as being what the engine really feels like it's working at, the, the elevation it's working at, that's kind of important. And from personal experience, thanks to Don Hicks, my primary CFI, I got a demonstration of the difference in a takeoff roll on a hot day at 1300 MSL when the density altitude worked out to 4200 or so. Uh, the difference in takeoff roll between having the mixture full rich on a Cherokee 140 and leaning the engine until you got a little pop in the RPM, and that's a fixed-pitch prop. So it, when it pops up a little bit, it stays there. Mm -hmm. The engine's running more efficiently. It's making more power. <clears throat> it's turning the prop faster. And then off you okay. go. I've, I've found the – I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, there, the, the, there's a, a little pushback on the argument that says, well, the, you know, the, uh, the prop's going to reach the optimal RPM uh, that it can reach anyway, and I think that's bunk. I think that it'll only reach the RPM the engine's making power for it to reach, regardless of the density altitude or in spite of the density altitude. Well, well here, here's the numbers that now I don't know where these numbers came from. These are the numbers with which I'm familiar and which I'm going to use for this discussion. Um, uh, temperature, ambient temperature at the time was like 27 degrees centigrade. That's what was reported nearby. It was the closest official observation. Say it again. What? 20? 20, 27 degrees centigrade, 80 degrees Fahrenheit. Got it. 80.6. Okay. The field elevation at the airport from which they were departing is 6,370 feet. Whoa. Yeah. The uh, um, Denalta calculation, according to this resource, was 9,167 feet. 9,167 feet. Good gosh. My Bonanza would have a hard time getting out. I know. What's the My service? My Bonanza would have a hard time getting out of their light. What's the service ceiling that rated, you know, in, on this aircraft? This, this same resource says the service ceiling for a Stinson 108-3 is 16,500 feet. Okay, well, but still, uh, that's a that's but, a lot, But, but 9, you're, you're at, at, at 9,100, 9, you're more than halfway to the service ceiling, A. B, that service ceiling was done on... on uh, uh, new airplane, uh, new engine, all that kind of stuff. Right. Probably no antenna. 16, probably no antenna. They're not going to get sixteen five out of that airplane today. Yeah. yeah. And plus, you got to remember that at least as I think, if I'm understanding this correctly, although they're more than halfway in terms of number of feet, they're way more than halfway in terms of the amount of atmosphere that they've got left. You know, or, or well, have lost, if you will. Um, you oh know, yeah, it, yeah, that too. But at, at ninety-one sixty-seven, um, they've—I don't think they're capable of making more than sixty-five percent horsepower. Yeah, and it might be down to sixty percent, especially with the heat. I, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Have either of you? And and to be sure, you guys have learned these things through all sorts of other you know ways in in your many many thousands of hours of experience. But have either of you taken a formal mountain flying course? I, I have not. Yeah, I Dave? have not. I, uh, most of my early flying was in hang gliders and done in the mountains. Yeah, yeah. And so you kind of got a mountain course by proxy as you progress through the different hang gliding ratings. 
uh, and I've not taken a mountain course, but from what I've read, the, the, the cross-pollination would be strong. Uh, with the one thing that we never cal- we, we never worried about a percentage of engine power on our hang glider, mm-hmm. regardless of the DA. Yeah, I haven't either taken a mountain flying course. I, I back in you know, and I live out here in the in the East Coast where we don't really have mountains. But uh, you know, I, I as everybody knows, I did a lot of my early flying in the uh, San Francisco Bay Area, the California area, and uh, West Valley Flying Club, where I was a member at the time, had a rule that you couldn't take one of their rental aircraft on a flight to an airport. I think it was like maybe a three hundred feet um, of elevation. Three, I'm correction, three thousand feet of elevation. Um, unless you um, got their mountain flying checkout first, and uh, you know it this, was, this airport was where? Well, the airport was at the at the edge of uh, San Francisco Bay, so we were basically oh, okay, at okay, six yeah, yeah, feet. Okay. I right? thought you were talking about something in New Hampshire. No, no, no. This was this was back on the east on the west coast, back when I was in California. Um, I freely admit to being an East Coast pilot. You know, um, I've been to the West Coast in my airplane, uh, into Vegas. You know, all that kind of stuff. Um, but I, I usually go north and south or east and west, and, and you know it's rare that I'll cross the Mississippi. But I've done it quite a bit lately, so you know. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah. Uh, I don't have to worry too much about mounds. I think it's you know, I think sixty five hundred feet will buy you anything. You know, east of the Mississippi. Yeah. Yeah. So well, not yeah, that we don't have mountain conditions out here, but it's it's not you know where these well, folks it, were. But yeah, go ahead, David. You don't even have to be in the mountains for this stuff to be of major relevance. Yeah, uh, and that's I'll give true. you an example. Uh, let's, let's talk about Goodland, Kansas. Goodland, Kansas is out in the middle of the flats, baby. It's still an hour and a half drive to the foothills of the Rockies, going westbound. Uh, but it's you know over way over three thousand. I think thirty two hundred, thirty eight hundred feet MSL there, uh, which means that on a nice August day. When it's 85 degrees on the ramp, uh, you, you're going to need mountain-type performance to be climbing out of ground effect. Uh, I mean, it just is what it is. When you start out with less than 75% power on takeoff roll, right. you're automatically facing you know, uh, some handicaps in, in how, many, how many miles you'll travel per 100 foot of climb, uh, what your climb rate's going to be. Uh, what it would take to uh, clear an object, uh, the dangers, uh, the dangers of turning too steeply when you're at that kind of high density altitude and without the power to climb assertively. Uh, you know, it, 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 you could be in West Virginia and face that. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So, anyways, um, you know, our, our conversation here probably makes it sound like we're pointing a big finger at the pilot of this aircraft, and you got to remember, we don't know what really happened here, and and it could well turn out that there was something completely different at play here. So, so we don't know, yeah. but I think in any event, this is a really, really useful object lesson, if only hypothetically, that you got to be careful about high altitudes like this, these density altitudes. This will get you. And shut off the damn video cameras. <laughs> yeah, or not. Uh, you know, I was thinking that 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 ought to be that, that those two pieces of footage from those cameras uh, edited together like that should be a part of every DVD online yeah. and and paper based uh, private pilot and commercial pilot. Uh, uh, yeah. Well, flight package, instruction package, because you, you, it's classic there, and you. 
I don't know about you guys, but didn't it look to you through the camera like the terrain was rising out ahead yeah. of the airplane? Yeah. I, oh, I said that early on in this conversation. Definitely. They were flying towards rising terrain. He didn't have any choice. The trick it, of it all is he probably had just a wonderful flight in there because, you know, he's flying toward descending terrain. I'm sure the airplane performed admirably. Mm-hmm. He probably came up from a lower altitude airport and just wasn't aware of, of you know, what he was getting himself into. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. I kept wondering, does he not see the terrain coming up? Yeah. No, and, what, you know, he started a shallow turn there at one point that I thought, ah, he's, he's spotted the fact that he's getting boxed in. He's yeah. turning around. He's going to go back downhill, and he's going to call for pizza. And then he leveled out again, and you're like, he was just dodging a tree. And, and, and at that point, I'm going, <laughs> if he doesn't make a new decision soon, yeah, yeah. the terrain, he doesn't have to. All he has to do is not climb as fast as the terrain, and eventually the tree will reach up and grab you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, so. Uh, yeah, it, it's it's just. Uh, yeah, we, we don't want to. I think it, we've gone about as far yeah, as we want to go in terms of yeah, trying really. to figure out, speculate yeah. on what really happened. I, I'm really glad everybody came out of that intact, uh, seriously. Yeah. And thank you for leaving the camera on because it's proving useful observing and theorizing material for many, many thousands of us. In all seriousness, yeah, Dave's absolutely right. It's, it's a great lesson for anyone who flies personal airplanes. Um, we don't know anything about the airplane. We don't know anything about the pilot. Uh, he may have been the ace of the base in all ways. I don't know. Yeah, time will tell. But uh, you know, even even you know, thinking about you know what it maybe looks like is an, a good lesson. You know, whether or not that's what happened there, it could well, happen, in, and you don't in, in you don't want fairness, it to happen to that you. Can be, that can be kind of deceptive, depending on the attitude of the airplane, uh, the way the cow slopes away, yeah. uh, how high or low you sit in the seat. Uh, you can get a little bit of an illusion that the airplane. If you're seeing climb on the VSI, it, it, and you're looking out at the, the rising terrain, it can very well appeal, appear to you that you're climbing faster than the terrain until it's no longer, you know, true. Yeah. That's uh, it, why they make these little scopey things to give pilots the pilots by to tell whether that cloud out there ten miles away is something they're going to overfly. Or right. penetrate. Yeah, right. Yeah. So, anyways, I'm sure we're going to return to this one. We'll we'll uh, we'll follow up on this when we learn a little bit more about what actually but happened. But uh, as a final note, though, yeah, uh, we we definitely hope everyone is going to be okay. Yeah, it looks like they are. Um, it looks like uh, only the 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 pilot flying was the one who was banged up the worst. And the notes we saw was that he's okay. And uh, we certainly wish him well in that regard, um, in all regards, but certainly in, in a medical you know, way, we wish him well. Yeah, we'll in, all, in all instances. Yeah. 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 And we'll return to this when we know a little bit more and we can talk about it, uh, you know, because as fun as it is to talk about it, you know, through our asses, we really don't know nothing. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. So there you go. And on that note, welcome folks to uh, episode. <laughs> welcome folks. Folks, to episode 302 of Uncontrolled Airspace, the General Aviation Podcast. You're going to be hearing a little bit of background noise throughout the day, but it's just airplanes, so it's not, it's it's not really noise. It's good background noise. That's yeah, right. this, is, right. this is the best seat in the house. We got Skyriders now. We got Skyriders. We got Skyriders. Does that say UCAP? I can't. It's got a runway in the front yard. <laughs> and you're in sight, clear. Right.
Turkey National Ground, good afternoon, sir. Taxi via Foxtrot and Delta. We're recording this episode on Friday, August 10, 2012, and joining me here in the virtual hangar are my two good friends. Uh, Jeb Burnside's there, talking to us from somewhere near Sarasota, Florida. How you doing today, Jeb? I'm doing fine. I, long uh, few days here, just put another issue of uh, Aviation Safety Magazine to bed, so I'm once again basking in the glow. Basking of, in the glow, uh, there you go. Having, a, having an issue in the can. Yeah. And also out there is uh, Dave Higdon talking to us from somewhere near Wichita, Kansas, where it only got to 95 today. It was like a... Wow, that's like a heat wave. Oh, it was a cold snap, man. It was a cold snap. I almost got out the snowmobile suit and the silk long johns. I know. I was joking with somebody recently that I was thinking about moving to Florida where the weather's not so hot. Uh, I mean, it's just... It's you can just, take that so many different ways. Yeah, well, no, no, no. You know what I'm I mean. I'm thinking about going to Florida. You know, the weather's not so hot now. No, there. you know what I mean. Um, it's just a weird year in, in, in terms of temperature, anyways, weather all over America. So, uh, any, any idea why that brought out the fog hog, foghorn leghorn in me. I don't. Yeah, I know it did though, didn't it? That was cool. That was cool. Well, okay, I know. I have to work with it. Maybe I can do something with that. Um, and before I forget again this week, because I did last week, uh, I'm Jack Hodgson, and I'm coming to you from high atop, uh, gray and stormy lookout point in Nottingham, New Hampshire. Y'all getting, y'all getting rain there? We are. Look at the radar. It's cool. Uh, I will. Uh, at least when I looked at it about 15, 20 minutes ago, it was a big, big patch of uh, uh, orange and red and uh, coming right over the area. So, yeah, it's raining pretty good and and, uh, and uh, gray skies and, and just kind of, you know, that kind of a day here at Lookout Point. Anyways, what's going on? How's everybody doing? Anybody been flying? Jeb? And not since I got back from Oshkosh. I've been tied to a desk pretty much. Yeah, yeah. It's... Uh, like I said, it's gray and rainy up here and stuff going on, so I haven't had a chance to get I, out since try, I've been gonna, back. Yeah, I'm going to try to get out this weekend. Um, neighbor um, needs her, her airplane test flown uh-huh. coming, out of, coming out of inspection or something like that. She didn't want to do it by herself. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I'll go with her. I'll do it for her or whatever. Yeah. Um, and I need to fly mine just to write jot down some um, things I need to work on, make sure I, I understand what's not what's not right and, and get somebody to, to uh, look at it and tell me what the job's going to cost things like that right but, yeah any progress on the project that must not be named a little bit but i don't want to talk about it <laughs> okay what's going on here let's see now there is a list I've, I've been i've been wrapped around the axle getting this issue of the magazine out and there's this there's this little interruption to my workflow called oshkosh yeah i know so I've been playing catch up here for well. You know that sucker two, happened to me weeks. too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, David, this is right up your alley. A listener uh, in the uh, in the forums has called our attention to the fact that there was some sort of hang gliding world record set recently. The guy flew four hundred and seventy five miles in a hang glider. I can't quite get that much out of a one fifty two. <laughs> 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 That's because you're burdened by all that fuel. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> what happened, David? Are you familiar with this whole thing? Uh, I'd been getting familiar with it since you put it on the list. Uh, I heard a little bit about it through uh, through an old grapevine, but I hadn't had a chance to really look into it. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, this guy, Johnny, uh, uh, after multiple attempts of, that took him over 500 kilometers... Uh, he finally got one. It took him about 
500 and I believe it was 61 kilometers, just short of 400 miles, mm-hmm. uh, and, and to a declared goal. This was a world record attempt, uh, uh, open distance to a declared goal. Now, this is down uh, in Texas, right? Yep. Yeah, started and ended in Texas. It's good to have a long state if you want to do that in one in, in, in one, within one border. Well, but doing it in one state is not part of the record, or is it? I don't no, know. no, that's not part of the record. The distance is what's part of the record. Yeah. And uh, on the link that you included, there's a, 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 a map from a spot tracking uh, service that shows the guy's reporting points. And that's after it inadvertently cropped off the first 10 or 12 uh, back to Zapata, Texas, at the top of Falcon Lake which is just barely inside Texas. If you took a hard left turn there, uh, you'd be in Mexico. Uh, and flew it all the way up to Sterling City, Texas, uh, about 350 miles to the north-northwest. Uh, that beat the old record of 321 uh, that, was, that stood for about 10 years. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to be looking up the... the uh, oh, God, there's another one, 475. Holy crap. I keep, yeah, you're right, 475 miles mm-hmm. Yeah, before it was all over. Uh, that's just massive. Uh, yeah, I want to find out what he's flying. Cool. That's very cool. Yeah. Hey, read, read this, this post. What does it uh, say, Joe? Uh, there's, there's more detail in the post. I don't know what, what he was flying, for example. Um, but, yeah, that's, that, that's, you know, that's heavy duty. Yeah. So, well, I, I mean, that's massive for flying sailplanes. Uh, yeah. And sailplane records are more than double the, the, that. Yeah. But, uh, gee, many Christmas. Uh, now, I read in one of the pieces 12, that... 13 hours in a hang glider. Yeah, I read in one of his pieces that he actually... The thing that forced him to the ground was that the batteries ran out on his electronics. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so... It's pretty interesting stuff. I it's I can't. It's not my kind of flying, but it's very impressive. Um, I mean, and it, presumably this is well. I don't know. Maybe obviously this is thermaling, David. That's how he's staying aloft. Yeah, yeah. yeah they're basically uh, chasing uh, lift uh, along a long system line uh, that uh, you know, if it's strong enough and goes high enough, you can just kind of run along the edge of that puppy like these guys did for hundreds of miles. And you might even see them when you're out flying. Uh, you might be above them, but there'll be, there'll be pronounced lines of, of cumulus cloud popcorns. And, and we'd call those things streets, cloud streets. I've and heard that just, term. Yeah. Stay under the cloud street or just upwind of it. You could be pretty well assured of picking up whatever lift was being generated out there and riding it for as long as it, it, it lasted or as long as you lasted, whichever came first. Uh, and these guys are flying some of the most uh, tech uh, flex wing gliders on, on the market right now. One of them's uh, a Moise. That's one of the oldest names in hang gliding uh, from Australia. Uh, the other fellow that's in on this was flying a Wills wing. Uh, Wills is one of the oldest uh, names in the business, uh, going all the way back into the 70s. Uh, a lot of carbon fiber in these wings. Uh, if you look at some of the pictures, you'll notice that they don't have top posts or top wires, uh, which were standard only to carry the, the negative loads when the, when the wing unloads, like when it's sitting on the ground. Uh, 
Well, they've got them now with crossbars that uh, support the leading edges, more like cantilevered wings, and uh, then and, and, and less drag on the bottom with fared down tubes and, and crossbars. Uh, looks like about 90% double surface on the wing. And those double surfaces will be loose enough to move relative to one another so that as the wing flexes up and down to roll the glider, uh, it doesn't require you to have, you know, a, a Schwarzenegger circa uh, the, the uh, Terminator kind of physique to, to turn the bloody things. And variable geometry, so you can change how uh, efficient the, the, the wing is. Really? Uh, yeah, the variable geometry, if you loosen it up, it makes the glider turn more easily. Mm-hmm. Then when you get to the top of the lift, you tighten up on the VG. Uh, that increases the glide ratio and reduces the sink rate a little bit. I never knew hang gliders had that kind of thing. That makes sense, but I never realized that. That's interesting. Yeah, my last three uh, were all Sensor 510s. They were uh, 70% double surface wing, 135-degree nose angle about 165 square feet of sail, elliptical tips that were completely flexible on the outboard three feet, uh, thanks to these hollow fiberglass tapered tubes that plugged into the leading edge, and then you pull the sail back over it. From the top down, the wings look like a Spitfire. Uh, and in uh, the uh, double surface and a uh, what they call floating keel pocket, uh, the crossbar was free to move from side to side on wire tethers inside the double surface. Then it had a fared down tubes, fared king post, uh, and the smallest wires that they could get away with to carry the loads. Uh, yeah, cool. It was it was wicked in its day. They're even better now. Yeah. How does it work with these world record attempts? Do you know? Um, is it is it from the starting point to the ending point, or is it actual distance traveled? In other words, if he had to zig and zag or circle for thermaling, does that count towards the distance? Or? No, it's great circle distance is yeah. what they usually measure. Yeah. yeah. So so that's that's not even really a straight line. Yeah. No. Yeah. So you got to work. You got to earn that. That's that's very impressive. Very impressive. It, Folks, it's should, the curved line that connects two points on a on a sphere. Right. Yeah. No. I know the great. You know what a great circle is, David. I um, wasn't sure that everybody that you were talking to knew. Yeah, well, that's possibly true. Um, so, uh, very, very cool. Um, uh, as uh, Jeb alluded, there's a, uh, a fairly long uh, uh, story in the uh, forums telling telling all the details of this. Everybody ought to check it out and uh, um, and uh, you know learn more about this. It's very, very cool. Thanks. Yeah, it's, to, it's very heavy duty. Yeah, good stuff. Yeah, it's just good. fantastic, guys. Good stuff. Uh, spoofing ADSB, Jeb. What's the story here? I mean, can looking just really scanning this real quick. This is a um, late July story, July twenty-five. That was a lot of brain cells ago, um, so I don't remember all the details. But uh, DefCon security conference uh, that week in Las Vegas, two researchers um, presented in, uh, did a presentation, presented a paper, whatever. Um, how. ADSB can be spoofed or, or at least um, uh, tricked in some ways where there are transmitters transmitting data, bogus data, uh, on the appropriate frequencies and the receiving equipment gets overloaded. It's kind of like a distributed denial of service attack. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and basically what quote from the story says, it's practically possible for a medium technical savvy person to mount an attack 
and impersonate a plane that's not there. Makes okay, sense. So, it's scary, yeah, but it, yeah, it whoever, does make some sense. You know, I don't know whether the ADSB they... is not encrypted, uh, and there's there's um, well, the technology yeah. the, the the technology these days is fairly simple. Right, it's all digital, and uh, the ship sets are are, are well understood. Yeah. So, well, because not? these things are all modular, right? The ADSB transmitter, even if it was encrypted, it I would, and I'm just totally speculating here. But all you got to do is plug bogus GPS data into it, right? You know, you got uh-huh. you know because you you attach the ADSB box to a GPS receiver. That's right, and and if you send you know, you hook it up to a gadget that's actually synthesizing GPS data. Um, yeah, and then you're going to get the ADSB device to send out the wrong stuff. I can easily imagine this being true. I but wonder what they're going to do to make this. I don't. I don't, I don't know. Um, more troubling is the ability to fabricate fake signals that are indistinguishable from real ones. Using a software-defined radio, a PC-based receiver, and transmitter that's far more versatile than the average consumer radio, anyone from a prankster to a determined attacker could create a message alerting a tower or plane to an in- oncoming jet that doesn't exist. Yeah. Okay. We're going to have to okay. keep an eye on this one. I've got one question about this. Thing. Yeah. Now, I know that Modest transponders, and I thought the uh, 978 UAT units, that's a transponder receiver right. package. The Modest works on 10 All had a distinct code an identity code assigned to them that had to be registered when it was purchased and installed in the aircraft. Uh, and that mode S is, lets the, the air traffic control people, even right now using radar, know that that airplane, is, you know, not only what that airplane is, but the, the address, they can find the address of the owner. There's all this information packed in with that identity code that's embedded in the extended squitter of the 1090 right. mode S transponder. Wouldn't they have to uh, mimic that also? I'm not saying that's not possible, but wouldn't they have to at least be able to access that and mimic some valid okay. identity code for Let, this to work? Let's let's say that they do. Let's need to mimic some or, or transmit some uh, IKO aircraft uh, code. I think that's close that, to that, the official correct. term yeah. for that code. Yeah, but. The FAA, the ADSB receivers on the ground cannot be checking that number against a known database. Uh, well, I, in real, I, I don't, they, I don't think I they can they do did. that in real. I don't think they can do that in real time. Maybe they can. I don't know. I thought they, I thought they did. That that was part of uh, the way that, like, so, you, you get so a, what, a squawk so number. What, so what difference does it make? Make up a number. Well, if it's not part of. The software system, if it doesn't match up, right? But I'm saying be rejected guy, by the by the air traffic control facility. The guy doing the spoofing, all he can just spoof a real a real code. That's what I'm asking about. Yeah, I don't know, and and I can see where you all of a sudden have you know, let's say there's one inbound legit aircraft, okay, and you you grab the ADS. Transmission data from it, use its code, and transmit that from a hundred different transmitters all at the same time. Yeah, you may. That's well when, that's, right when the, that's when the that's when the jig is up. Right. 
but I, it, it seems to me that that equally or even more disturbing than the idea that you might overload the system and then kind of block lo- because if the system got that loaded down i can you could put in you know alarms so at least you knew something was going wrong and you go into some other mode you know and but the the real scary oh, scenario <laughs> for me is that when what's that some other mode called radar. Yeah, no, I know, right. But the scary scenario for me would be not that you overload the system with too many uh, uh, signals, but that you f- you just invent one signal that's doing a particular thing in such a way to cause you know some some mischief. You know, and and I use that term. You know, you know, you know what I mean, right? Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I think a hundred thousand new targets suddenly appearing. Uh, is going to cause something to trip off. Yeah, you know, and that would be a bad thing, but at that least would be a terrible thing. You'd know something. I, I think- you'd know you have to react to it. So, anyways, long story short, I, I got to figure. Well, if if nothing else, there's going to be an answer. You know, there's, they're going to ha- the oh, yeah, ASB this- folks are going to say, "Oh no, this is not a problem because." Well, you and- know, while while we're talking about this, let's see if there has been any kind of a response because we're just seeing this one article. Yeah. Well, and, and while you're looking. I was looking at the publication date on this, uh, which is a couple of weeks yeah. ago uh, when we were all at Oshkosh, uh, uh, July 25. I think, where, where has Forbes been? This has been debated re- recurringly for four or five years now. This isn't, this isn't a new – nobody just discovered that this <laughs> spoofing thing is there. I mean, I'm sorry. I just, matter, I, just found, I just found the Wired – Threat level story on this? Yeah, what's it say? Here's the head. Are you ready for the head? Yeah. Air traffic controllers pick the wrong week to quit using radar. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, There's some movie fans on that staff. Oh, I do love it so. Yeah. So is there any response from the industry there, Jeb? I'm looking. I'm looking. I mean, there's some response from the FAA. Okay, here we go. In right. Greenberg's story, but yeah, the FAA is quoted at the at the last graph. I'll, I'll read this to you. The Federal Aviation Administration, when asked about the vulnerabilities by Forbes prior to the conference, said that it had quote a thorough process in place to identify and mitigate possible risks to ADSB, such as intentional jamming unquote, and that it quote conducts ongoing assessments of ADSB signal vulnerabilities. Um, but it's a secret. These risks are secure. Yeah, these risks are security sensitive and are not publicly available. Oh, gee whiz. Okay. Well, in, in, in the uh, so. the uh, the Forbes story only covers half the ADSB system. That's right. The 1090 ES. There's 978 UAT systems that are. I don't know if you guys noticed, but a lot of the stuff that came out at Oshkosh was 978 UAT. Right. Uh, universal access transceiver. Uh, which will not be subject to the 1090 ES problem because it doesn't use 1090 megahertz. Uh, doesn't mean that you couldn't spoof 978, I guess, as well. Uh, and there's, there's, uh, I don't know. I guess it's wow that's coming out at this conference. Suddenly, it's valid sense to this story that. You'd think that they would have mentioned that this has been a recurring uh, issue that was first pointed out to the FAA some years ago 
when they were doing the capstone project up in Alaska and in the Ohio River Valley, the the the, the one there with the uh, UPS, and then there was the uh, the whole setup with the uh, GPS jamming, which is way 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 not new. So uh, I'm I'm intrigued by the story, but it didn't it didn't break any new ground in my head. I mean, it's like. Okay, new guys have discovered it. Uh, if that gets them a trip to a conference, cool. I like going to Vegas. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, we'll keep an eye on this one see what's going on here. Uh, good news. Just sort of follow up. The uh, president has signed the Pilot's Bill of Rights. That's cool. And uh, yeah. as we expected, I, I don't think we thought it was going to be any kind no. of an issue, but, uh, no. but he's signed it. So does it go into effect immediately, Jeb, or how does that work? I think it does. I, I haven't read the bill lately. Yeah, so they've already uh, fixed the NOTAM system is what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. Now, built into that are, are you know some, some efforts over the long term, I'd guess a couple of years, to uh, come to some consensus on what needs to be done with the NOTAM system. That will involve industry, the user groups. Um, same thing for the medical certification process. Yeah. Um, not coincidentally... Um, it's coming. It's a lot of people are talking about it in some of the forums I look at. New medical rules are going into place as of October one, where you can only make your medical certificate application online. You can't just walk into a doctor's office and do it all via paper. As I say, that's coming online uh, October one. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, that's a change that's been in the works for a little yeah, while. It yeah. has. So, so that's a good thing, and uh, yeah, moving forward now, very very cool that we got this this bill of rights. You know, I mean, well, now yeah. the entertaining part will be watching what the how the FAA uh, uh, works to implement yeah. some of the stuff that some of the changes that it's got to, uh, that's yeah. being required to. Uh, and again, that's you know the 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 stuff on NOTAMs and in the, the medical, um, you know, that's that's kind of a policy level thing. Um, the uh, um, stuff on uh, uh, enforcement and uh, evidence availability and things like that, that gets more into the enforcement side, obviously. And what I'm, the way I read the bill, I mean, they, it made an immediate change to the underlying statute. And it wasn't, you know, on such and such a date, you know, the FAA will do X, Y, or Z. It was more a matter of uh, effective with enactment. This statutory language changes, and the FAA shall do this. It'll take a while for you know all that to to filter down through the system for some some test cases quote unquote to go through a couple a couple more years yeah yeah it's cool our pal uh, Jimmy Beckett has a an interesting piece in uh, in his he has a fairly regular column at, that's part of the General Aviation News and uh, um, this one caught my attention for kind of a, a secondary reason um, the the column is all about it's talking about the 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 so-called upcoming pilot shortage and how we suddenly the airlines are suddenly realizing they're not going to be enough pilots and what they're going to do about this and and jamie's just kind of talking about the ways that we might go about uh, uh, generating more pilots creating more pilots and uh, uh, it's an interesting piece and everybody should take a look at it the part that caught my attention 
is that his lead, and in fact the headline of the whole piece, is how to fill a hangar. He says, and in the lead he says, how can your airport fill up its empty hangars? All right? And this is the part that caught my attention, because my experience from, from growing up as a pilot in California is that there are no empty hangars. In fact, there aren't <laughs> enough hangars. All right? There are airports that, the airports that I've been hanging out, certainly in the San Francisco Bay Area, and to a certain extent here in New England as well, where the waiting list to get a hangar, to rent a hangar, is years and years long. Um, sure. And people well, just... We all know airports that are in trouble because they're just not getting the business. They don't have enough people supporting them. Uh, they're the ones that we read about that are at risk from month to month. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, that's my question. Is it, is Which is more common in airports around the country as in general? What's more common, having too many empty hangars or not having enough hangars to feed, meet the demand? Not having enough hangars is, is that with which I am more familiar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That said, these days, if I needed a hangar, if I needed to put my airplane in a hangar off the, off the property... It'd be easy, no problem. Uh, you just have to look around. You wouldn't necessarily find one at your airport be, of choice. I'd probably be able to find one here if I needed one, you know. Uh, but I certainly could find one at a nearby airport without mm-hmm. any problem at all. Yeah, yeah. So uh, it's an interesting yeah. piece, but that particular yeah. aspect of it caught my attention. If, and if I was in D.C., it's a whole different kettle of fish. So it, it, talking about densely populated areas versus rural areas and uh, – uh, you know, I probably couldn't get a hangar at Sarasota Bradenton International. Yeah. But I could definitely get a hangar, you know, somewhere around here. Yeah. Okay. But what, what Jamie was talking about here, I think, is more important, uh, a more important issue than how d- tough it might be to find hangar space, temporary or permanent. And, and, and that's not just a, important for the airline's needs and the military's needs in the coming future. Uh, It's for the existence of the industry, for the existence of our community, Mm -hmm. the existence of the mechanics and and, and the avionics techs and the airports themselves. Because right now we're we're a shrinking population. I know. We can't continue to shrink like this. We, We barely have enough to sell airplanes to support the industry that builds them. I've said on this podcast how to solve this problem. I mean, I'm on the record, okay? The solution to this problem, not the solution, but the way to make huge progress on this problem is for all of the industry, particularly, you know, the organizations like Cessna and Piper and and Sporties and Jepson and, you know, all these people need to get together and start a fund and get give away free flying lessons, all right? If anybody who had a good faith desire to learn how to fly could get a sport pilot license, no charge, and you'd have to meet various criteria and, you know, you know, goals and show that you're, you're genuine, all right? But if you could get a sport pilot license basically for free, all right, that would energize this industry, all right? And in fact, Sporties and Cessna and all these guys would make money on the deal. Oh, right? absolutely. They all right. Absolutely. You know, um, but they need to get, you know, they need to kind of, you know, come to the realization that they need to make this investment. That's my view. That would that that, that, that might stabilize the private po- population that buys and flies little airplanes. But I don't think it come uh, at all close to meeting the needs that we're going to have for military and commercial pilots on top of what we need to support yeah, the industry. I, I agree with that. Well, but I, that's where they come I, from, I, I, right? That's you know they're going to. Well, they're... that's they, they. You start with that, but they start it, there. It, 
you start there. But what Jamie's talking about, and he and I have talked about this, and I've talked about it with friends, we need another civilian pilot training corps. Uh, the civilian pilot training corps is what Jamie's talking about in here, oh. where 1937, the, the Roosevelt administration and the folks at the War Department recognized that what was going on in Europe was going to have global implications, and if they were going to compete, if we were going to survive as a country, we were going to need a major growth in, in military infrastructure, pilots probably being the most labor-intensive to train and get on the job. You can get a guy with a rifle and a backpack through infantry training in about four or five months, and that's with the advanced training. But to get a pilot in from basic training through into the seat of a combat aircraft, even at the peak of the war, it was taking us over a year. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so they started early with well, the civilian pilot training program, which came with it. You got training, you got uh, the discipline, the environment, and with it came the obligation to serve if called on. And that was the pilot population that helped us get through the first two years of World War II. Yeah. ROTC for pilots, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think Jack's right. Uh, first of all, I think if, if flying lessons were more accessible or, or, or free up through sport pilot or, you know, let's say 20 hours or something like that, um, I think, yeah, more people would do it. Um, I don't think that is all of the problem, though. I don't think money or, or um, uh, time is, is part of the problem. I think it comes right down to it. Um, the video that we saw or and talked about earlier in this episode <laughs> it is the problem. People say that and say, wow, da, da, but they don't really want to go do that. we we got a safety perception problem. We may have a safety problem also. Uh, you know, entirely too many people are, are doing the same uh, stupid things entirely too many times. We know that we shouldn't be doing this, but we do it anyway. And that's what we really got to fix here. Um, you screw up on a, on, a, on a boat out on the bay or uh, on a motorcycle out in the backwoods, and you're probably not going to die. Screw up in an airplane, and the consequences are a little bit graver. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's what I think ultimately has a lot of people scared off. Until we can lick what is perceived and what is, I would guess, probably a safety problem, you look at the record, we're not improving our safety. But, well, you're right. You, you add a third dimension to the mode of transportation, and you, yeah. you take on a whole bunch of risks that don't exist otherwise, whether it's airplanes or submarines. Yeah, and uh, I'm not saying I'm not saying that that personal planes are unsafe. I'm saying they're a little bit more risky than some other endeavors that uh, people uh, engage in without nearly uh, the consequences. Yeah, yeah. So we uh, until until we can hit the safety issue, I think. And or the safety perception, um, I think we're stuck. Sorry. Maybe. Maybe. Well, What's, they've been knocking, the industry's been knocking around and nibbling at the edges of this for 20, 25 years now. Uh, there was the Be a Pilot and Learn to Fly. Uh, the EAA's Young Eagles programs put a lot of kids through their first flights, and there's been, you know, measurable response to that it seems and now they've got the eagle flight thing to try to do the same thing with folks above the young eagles cut off age uh guys our age and younger uh 
but I think Jack might be onto something here. If you could get flying lessons in exchange for some kind of work, some kind of service, some kind of uh, uh, yeah, trade out. It's called, it's called money. Well, other than that, because right now it's it, 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 to generate the kind of numbers that we need. Uh, I think people are scared to spend money on something that's that avocational and not vocational. Well, certainly, you know, the, the overall economic uh, situation hasn't helped general aviation. There's a lot, you know, people have a lot less um, um, spending money, shall we say. Um, okay, I get that. But, you know, we're talking about the same structural problems that this industry's had 50, 60 years. I agree with you. Uh, and back in the day of the Learn to Fly Girls, uh-huh. Gamma members would supply the Learn to Fly Girls with a loaner airplane, and they'd fly around the country and do programs in cities you, like... You, you, you like, keep talking about the... Yeah, he does have a thing with girls these. Girls flying around the country. He does have a but, thing with that, yeah. yeah it, 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 did, it did a lot to bring people into the fold who only knew grapevine stuff about it. Uh-huh. Now, also, what really helped was the investment tax credit for buying an airplane. Well, that that plus we didn't have the internet like we do now, so it's not hard to get information about you know airplanes these days. Yeah, uh, but you still got to get off the internet to go to the airport to experience yeah, the that's real e- thing. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. So, anyways. Moving on, uh, the we have the UCAP Echo clip of the week here. Uh, for those not uh, who are a little behind the the uh, the curve here, we've introduced a new uh, part of the uh, UCAP world, which is a uh, a portion of the website where we have a browsable, searchable uh, archive of the the best of uncontrolled airspace over the years, uh, as well as some other aviation podcasts. And uh, this week, I want to call attention to a couple of clips that we've just recently added. Um, we're we're into adding clips right now from. The the very earliest days uh, and from the first six months of uncontrolled airspace. Um, it, the first time we went to Sun and Fun, uh, we did a couple of episodes from the Sun and Fun fly-in uh, with our friend Dave Shellbetter at Sun and Fun Radio. And uh, two of the guests that we had uh, on those episodes were uh, uh, our, our someone who's become my pal, wasn't at the time, but was you guys' pal for a long time. Um, Barry Valentine uh, was on the podcast, and he was a very interesting uh, uh, visitor and talked with us about some interesting things. And also Dale Klapmeyer of Cirrus Aircraft uh, visited the uh, our virtual hangar there at Sun and Fun back in 2007. And uh, it's very interesting to listen now, uh, years later, to the interview with Dale Klapmeyer. Um, back then, Cirrus was uh, still very, very strong, and, uh, and, and uh, you know, it's, it's kind of come a ways since then uh, with its uh, financial problems and its ultimate sh- sale to the uh, Chinese organization and with uh, Alan Klapmeyer, one of the founding brothers, leaving the company. Um, but back then, uh, that was all in the future, and uh, uh, Cirrus was uh, one of the shining examples of the GA industry. And it's interesting to listen not only to Dale talk about Cirrus and the industry, but to listen to us talk about uh, the industry and Cirrus's place in it. And uh, it's it's interesting to go back to 2007 and listen to that interview. So uh, that's the Echo Clip of the Week. You need to go to uncontrolledairspace.com slash echo and uh, search for Dale Klapmeyer or, if you're interested, the Barry Valentine interest interview is also very interesting. Um, the, we've come a long way since 2007. At least Cirrus has come a long way. Come a long way and gone a long way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, 
you know, it, we we back then, you know, were singing the praises. I mean, we still do sing the praises of Cirrus in they, many ways. They, they still make an excellent airplane. Yeah, but uh, a lot of things have changed since then. And uh, well, the brothers broke up, and the company got sold, and then it got sold again, and hired guns took over the management, and the brothers didn't run it anymore, and the jet stopped, and then the jet got back on, and uh, as you know, if if aviation was to have a soap opera series, it's stories like this that would make the week to week episodes work. Yeah, yeah. So check that out on uh, UCAP Echo. Dave, uh, Jeb, anything you want to add to that? Not a thing. You're going to stay out of it. It's like I'm not getting into that one. That could get ugly. Um, what's the story here? Uh, they arrested this guy for flying too low. I put this on the on the list so you'd think I would know something about it, don't you? It's never held, it's never held me back. <laughs> yeah, I know. Okay. From a website called Belmore Patch, which is, I believe, patch.com is one of the uh, ultra-local uh, uh, websites. Uh, Belmore is, let's see where Belmore is. New York. New York, you think? Nassau County? Yeah. Well, it says Belmore, New York Patch. So. No, it's New oh. York State. Yeah, okay, New York State. Uh, Belmore man arrested for flying plane below FAA regulated altitude. I mean, we won't even go into the exact wording of that, which is a little odd. But uh, a Belmore man was arrested Saturday after allegedly flying his plane at, at altitudes of 200 feet back in June near Kendy High School. Um, according to Nassau County detectives, Mark Capus, C-A-P-U-S, Capus, Capus, um, operated his, one seven, his 1972 Cessna twin-engine propeller aircraft at altitudes below the Federal Aviation Administration's minimum safe altitude. The defendant flew his aircraft over Belmore in the vicinity of this high school at an altitude of 200 to 400 feet as tracked by FAA New, York's, New York Tracon. Well, that's, you know, like open to a lot of discussion, isn't it? You know, minimum safe altitude, you know, 200, 400 feet over high school. Not very smart, just for starters, but uh, is it against the law? Not necessarily. Yeah. Jeb, is it is it against the law to fly your airplane at, at 400 feet over a high school? Sounds to me like you had an engine problem. <laughs> well, I'm sure that's his story. No, sir, where do you see that? Is that here? No. Yeah, right. I know. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, was, I was planning to land, right? Yeah, I know. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it, right? Yeah. I One engine know. was running rough, and I couldn't hold altitude on the other, and I was just lucky it came back at all. I mean, let's just. Yeah, I know, right? Yeah. No, I mean, all kidding aside, uh, let's just hypothetically, let's not talk about this guy, all right? You know, but if somebody flies in a way that is contrary to the FARs, can the local police? arrest you uh well they can arrest you for anything anytime anywhere do they really yeah, is, has, is there yeah is there any precedent here is the is the is do they have a, do they have a jurisdiction in this kind of thing they don't have jurisdiction but they can arrest for you know suspicion or whatever they want to do uh again anybody can be arrested for anything anytime right they're not gonna they're not gonna be able to make any charges stick uh, what, what are they going to charge you with? Unauthorized low flying? Well, they don't have that that authority. Uh, he was charged with reckless yeah. endangerment. Well, that's okay, and and maybe maybe he's guilty of that. I don't know. They can't charge him for violating an FAR because they don't enforce the FARs. Right, and 
200 to 400 feet is it with as with so many things in the fars is an it depends answer well, well yeah um you know if he's far enough away laterally and he's not flying over a congested area which some will say well he was flying over part of a city it's all congested no it's not necessarily uh you can fly along the river here in wichita and the, directly below you is definitely not congested area you're going to have a hard time maintaining a thousand feet away from anything left and right, but that's another issue. That's where he may not have violated a farce of flying in the vicinity of high school. What's the vicinity? A thousand feet, two thousand feet, twenty feet? Well, apparently they they claim that he was at least within two hundred feet of it because they said that he was at two hundred feet. That's not over what the this says. That's, that's not, not what, what it says. says. It's at an altitude of, in the vicinity of. Okay. All right. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So, anyways. And last time I last, what intrigues me about this is this first sentence in the last graph. Seventh squad detectives rec- arrested Capus Saturday at his residence with the assistance of the Federal Aviation Administration. Really. They bring along air marshals. Uh, yeah, I know. No, no, they looked up his address on the damn registry <laughs> and sent to sent a uniform and oh, sent two detectives out there. Yeah. That's what they did. Yeah. Is this a trend? Are we? It seems like more and more people are getting in criminal problems because they've flown an airplane in a particular way. I don't. I don't think so. I are think we just hearing just, about it more? Or I think is we're it? hearing about it more, and it it makes news more yeah. for some reason. Yeah. Okay. It's a bad thing to do, nonetheless. Yeah. Leave the enforcement of aviation regulations to the aviation regulation enforcers at the FAA, which means maybe they will. Well, I I can think of a lot of ways that I could use my airplane to recklessly endanger someone. Yeah. I don't know. You know, crank it up, taxi it around. You know, aim it at people. Whatever. Um, There's all kinds of stuff I could do. I don't know if the guy's guilty or innocent from the story. Four hundred yeah, feet, four hundred feet in the vicinity. Well, what else is in the vicinity? You know, if he's a thousand, what is it, two thousand feet laterally, and there's nothing else there, then four hundred feet is just as good as five hundred feet, and he's golden. Yeah, yeah. So, anyways, I don't. Know. I don't know. Maybe we'll try and follow this. I don't know what there is to. I'm mean, curious to know whether or not they actually get anything that sticks. And, well, it, it kind of adds a new, a new vari- variation to the phrase "around the patch." Yeah, I know, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, hey, Jeb, the circus is coming to town, right? The uh, the what? Republican National Convention is coming. Oh yeah, is coming yeah. to well, Tampa. No, 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 it's not coming to Sarasota. It's coming to Tampa. Coming to Tampa, but they're drawing a big circle around Tampa, uh-huh. and it comes how close to Hidden River? By my calculations, thanks to four flight, uh, four miles. So, so basically, when you take off from Hidden River, you want to definitely turn left, is what you're saying. I want to definitely, I would definitely want to be headed south, south. or east. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. what's the nature of these? Uh, and and in fairness, there's a big TFR that's going to going to spring up around the Democratic convention up in uh, Charlotte as well. Yeah, so, right. uh, what, what's the nature of these TFRs? Are they kind of plain vanilla t- presidential kind of TFRs, or are they different? Well, yes and yes and no. They're they're controlling <laughs> traffic into the conventions. Um, they have gateway airports. Uh, Sarasota Bradenton International is one of the gateway airports, um, and they're all being they're all being funneled into um, what used to be Vandenberg, which is now I think Tampa Executive. It's called. 
right. Peter o, Peter O'Night, which is right there on the water in the harbor, and or I should say in the bay, is closed for the duration. Oh, uh, that because, just bites. Yeah. Really, I didn't know that. That's, yeah, that's, that that just, kinda, I'm sorry, that they're, just bites. They're allowing operations between midnight and, and 6 a.m., I think is what it is. What are they going to oh. do if a C-17 needs a place to land? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, folks, that was a callback to a previous <laughs> episode. Exactly. Um, uh, and you know so, what they say about gateway airports. Yeah. If you try one gateway airport, then the next thing you know, you're going to want a stronger gateway airport. Exactly. So. Exactly. But but uh, they're doing all this now. You can, you know, IFR. Well, I'm sorry. There's a there's a ten nautical mile ring. I think it is around the convention center, into which nothing but uh, law enforcement and, and aeromedical is allowed, or you know something like that. Um, and that will probably include Tampa International for a period of time. I don't know. The whole thing is, is a mess. I don't have any intention of going in that direction. Um, I, I tried to, you know, share this, you know, with some local pilots, and, and we'll see what happens. But I, now, you said something I, a minute I'm ago. Waiting, I'm just waiting for the Blackhawk to land in my front yard. Yeah, well, all. you know, you never know, right? Um, especially your front yard. <laughs> tell, him to bring a, tell him to bring a sling. Oh yeah, no, no, David, David. Um, so uh, um, no, Jeb, you said something a minute ago that I want to follow up on here. Um, you sort of started to describe this TFR as more for the purpose of managing the increased traffic that is going to result, as opposed to security. Is that what you were saying? Or I don't remember saying that. I, I guess maybe I misunderstood. This TFR, is, this TFR is not designed to manage traffic. This is not a special traffic management okay. program. This is although, all about keeping people the out. FAA, although the FAA may put into place uh, a special traffic management program or an STMP, uh, I don't know. But this is not that program. Okay. All right, then. But the, the fact that you've got to clear yourself and your passengers at a gateway airport kind of sets up a flow control all of its own. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm sure some good stories are going to come out of both of these TFRs, so we'll we'll follow up with that a little bit later on. Shoutouts. What do we got here? It's getting to be And I was time. planning on trying to set a world record hang gliding from Key West up to uh, Tallahassee, but that I guess I'm not going to do that. That would be so not awesome. that week. If someone would bust one of these TFRs in a hang glider, that would be great. Um, anyways, shoutouts. Who's got a shoutout? There's a whole bunch. I, I, got, I don't know. These are all mine. David, you go first. Uh, I got it. Oh, 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 oh. Andrew Blanchard, longtime listener, uh, big fan of the podcast, uh, had a birthday uh, just a, a, a couple of weeks ago. Well, in the last couple of weeks and was supposed to have been taking his check ride on his birthday. But you know how things happen. And instead, he had to pass his check ride a couple of days later. But Andrew's one of our latest uh, success stories. Uh, tickled silly for you, man. Congratulations. Yeah, very, very cool. Congratulations. Um, I've got two here. Let's see. First of all, just a quick shout out to all my pals at uh, Nashua Airport uh, here in Nashua, New Hampshire, uh, where uh, by the time you listen to this uh, on Monday, the 13th, the uh, only runway at Nashua will, clo- Nashua will close for uh, 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 almost two weeks as they uh, transition over from the old runway to the new one that they have been building for uh, almost, well, for six or eight months now. And, uh, you know, I, I, I get the, my friends at Nashua are kind of of two 
two minds. It's like, oh, cool, we're going to get a new runway, but we're going to be shut down for two weeks at the end of the summer, which kind of is a drag. I, I'm looking forward to the mandatory, there's still X's on the runway, senatorial ribbon cutting. <laughs> yeah, that's going to happen, right? Yeah. So, uh, um, so just a shout out to my pals at uh, Nashua Airport who are going to go through this kind of different kind of aviation experience. They're all being relocated. Most everybody who cares um, has, is moving their airplanes to other airports around the area so that they can continue to fly during these two weeks. Um, and, and smartly, a number of airports are being very, very clever about, uh, uh, you know, kind of saying no tie-down fees, no hangar fees, come on up here. You know, um, particularly in Manchester, New Hampshire, is trying to rebuild its GA, um, you know, activities. And, well, good uh, for them. Yeah, and so they're saying, you know, no charge, come on up and keep your airplane here in the hopes that some of these people will say, yeah, it's kind of cool to fly out of Manchester, we're going to stay, you know. And uh, so... Uh, you know the the market the, the is, market system is is at work here. We'll see whether or not it has any real effect. But uh, but Nash was about to have a cool new uh, big longer. You know I think it's a little wider, a little bit more clear of the taxiway runway. And, and I think it's a little thicker too. Yeah, and it's it's yeah. the whole intent here is to be able to service um, a, a a bigger you know kind of state of the art class of business jet and. Uh, so they're doing yeah that. it's not just a matter of length and width but uh if you want to get over a certain type of uh, uh aircraft category yeah. eh, you gotta you gotta be thick as a brick you know and yeah. 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 right. re- regional jets and all that stuff too yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, and I'm not sure if they want airlines. There's no airlines now there now, and uh, I, I, no, that's, I that's what this is all about. It's about all about RJs. You think it is? Yeah. I've never heard anybody say that, but you may be right. You know. Well, remember that there's a lot of business aircraft that are in the same size and weight category as exactly. a CRJ. Exactly. Conveniently so. Conveniently so. That's yeah. correct. Yeah. So. so, I have one other shout out. But Jeb, do you have something? No, go ahead. Okay. Um, I saved this one to last because it's way cool, all right? Uh, as we say here in New England, wicked way cool. Um, <laughs> and that is that our, our pal and fellow aviation podcaster, Steve Tupper, has done it again, all right? Uh, Steve Tupper has managed to become, uh, and, and deservedly so. I don't mean to make this sound like it's not deserving. Um, he is now a member of the Tuskegee Airmen National, Air Hist- National Historical Museum's uh, air show team. They have a three ship uh, 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 air show team of uh, TG7A motor gliders that do demonstration flights uh, at air shows around the country. And Steve is now, uh, let's see now, he's actually got his, his uh, where did I put this here? Let's see. He is Tuskegee 3. Steve Dogbag Tupper and uh, on Facebag he's published a post a picture of his uh, yeah, his yeah. his uh, patch now and that is uh, very cool and just the other weekend he flew his first air show uh, with the team up in Michigan and apparently they're in the process now of trying there's another one there this is an air show team that does not do an awful lot of air shows throughout the year um, but it does do a handful and uh, he thought originally that this one in Michigan would be the last one of the year but there's another one that uh, that is is in the making I don't know if it's official yet. But uh, um, if you're at all interested, go to Steve's, uh, go to airspeed.com. Uh, see now, the website is, what's his website? Uh, airspeedonline.com is his, where, his website. Or you could go to his Facebook pages and uh, look for Steve Tupper. Yeah, neat looking little glider. It is, it is. They were actually at, at AirVenture. I saw them at AirVenture, took some pictures. They were out in the They let you out to see things? It, it, you know, not very much, but a little bit. 
a little bit. And uh, so, anyways, we're, we're we continue yeah. to be uh, 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 you know jealous and, uh, and 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 admiring and and all these things of Steve's yeah, accomplishments. Really. And uh, he, he you know and I, 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 I dare say no one is more excited about this than he is. He's really yeah. thrilled, yeah, you know, um, cool. uh, understandably about cool. the whole thing. So oh, yeah, it should be. Yeah. So big congratulations, big shout out to to Skiggy Three, Steve Dogbag Tupper, who's the newest member. I, 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 how do you get the dog bag? I, you know, I'm not sure exactly. Uh, I we'll have to get him to tell that story. I, I want to hear that story. He, that, that's been his code name for some time now. And although this being a more serious, you know, sort of, uh, uh, you know, fighter pilot e ish endeavor, um, <laughs> apparently they were entitled to give him a, a brand new name, you know, a name that's sort of official. But they've apparently embraced the dog bag name, and uh, so uh, he's been calling himself Dog Bag for some time you, now. You, you know, as they say, if the foo, well, no, never mind. <laughs> So, congratulations, Steve. That's awesome. Yeah, that's very cool. Yeah. So, anything? Anything else? Is that it? I was going to shout out to Ian Anderson on his 65th birthday. I've been listening to Jethro Tull all day, and it's just been awesome. It's a good aviation not, shout out. A, well, see, now we can do that. Well, we can go to anywhere. Yeah. Well, he once rode. He once rode in an airplane. I'm sure. Well, there you go. That's it. Oh yeah. Well, his music makes you fly. Yeah. Yeah. So. Oh, okay. Well, that's Dave Higdon. H I G D O N. And probably the title for this. That's episode. right. Yeah. And Dave is an aviation photographer, an aviation journalist, and the U.S. editor for London's World Aircraft Sales Magazine. David, what's going on? Where can people find you on the internet? Oh, the avbuyer.com, uh, aea.net, uh, or, uh, you know, play, play, play a little spin the wheel and Google Dave Higdon. And then remember, I'm not the golf writer or the theoretical physicist. Yeah. Anything new come out recently? I didn't mean to jump over this part, but uh, anything new come out recently that you want people to look at? I think I mentioned last week the pilot's guide to avionics from yep. AEA. I'm going to encourage people to lean on that one for a little while because I know how much they like handing them out. Yeah, very cool. And Jeb Burnside is a freelance aviation writer and editor, serving as the editor-in-chief of Aviation Safety Magazine. Jeb, what are you up to? What's going on? Uh, what you been working well, on? I mentioned at the top of the episode, just another issue of uh, Aviation Safety Magazine to bed. Um, our very own uh, Dave Higdon had a piece in there on... Uh, IFR planning tips. Um, also, I did? I yeah, you did. That. You did. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, I put your name on it. Let's put it that way. So, <laughs> I, I, I guess I owe you a check. I don't know. <laughs> okay. And where can people find you on the internet, Jeb? Uh, AviationSafetyMagazine dot com, uh, JeBurnside dot com, uh, webaea.net. Also, uh, just um, Comanche Sue uh, from the uh, forums and. Uh, a, um, a long-time listener and, and uh, friend uh, has an article in this, this month's issue uh, about getting her glider add-on. Oh, excellent. Yeah, yeah, that'd be very cool. Very cool. And I'm Jack Hodgson. I'm a private pilot, a freelance Yay! writer, and a new media producer. Uh, you can check out my uh, Kindle eBooks at uh, uh, Amazon.com slash author slash Jack Hodgson. Uh, I've also been working a lot lately on uh, on the new uh, UCAP Echo uh, uh, property that I've been talking about. You can learn more about that at UncontrolledAirspace.com slash 
Echo. And uh, in general, learn more about me at jackhodgson.com and aroundthefield.net. Big thanks to uh, Jeff Ward for creating our show notes and for all the other help that he gives us on the podcast. Thanks to Mike Morgan, Royce Earl, Jim Goldman, and to the many other listeners who have created the UCAP Disclaimer Clips. We are also very grateful for the financial support we receive from our listeners. For information on how you can make a donation to this podcast, see the Uncontrolled Airspace homepage and the box in the right-hand column labeled Tip Jar. doesn't need to be very much, just 10 or 15 dollars over the span of a year is a big big help and don't forget you can visit with, a, with us all at the, the uncontrolled airspace website you can check out echo you can read the blog view the forums check out the wiki the aviation wiki. movies list the new ratings webpage of fame and more all of that is at uncontrolledairspace.com david something you wanted to say live long i mean really long get all <laughs> the airtime you can because time spent flying is not subtracted from your lifespan bye-bye and that's enough talking. Let's go flying. A-M-F-F-M. But it's easy for you to say. Yeah, yeah, huh? The members of the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast are participating as private individuals. Their comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the various organizations they work with. Also, anything you hear on this podcast that sounds like advice on aircraft operation is obviously very general. You should always consider your own situation, remember your training, and fly the airplane. But you knew that.